welcome to the No Alibis Press podcast. Yay! Thanks, <laughs> thanks very much for having me here. Oh no, Delighted. don't be daft, don't be daft. It's in anticipation of our third publication, Still Worlds Turning, a collection of short stories that you are very proudly part of, I hope. Yep, definitely. Um, great, we're so happy to have you here and in the collection. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, about writing, why you write, how you came to it? I've always written when I was much younger I used to write stories I think I started writing a novel when I was about eight I think it was about some chewing gum do you still have it the world. <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> but um one thing I did do I wrote to I don't know whether you know Judy Bloom she's yeah. kind of very my goodness famous yes. kind of young adult and I wrote to her in America asking for advice because you know I really wanted to write a book and she actually wrote back to me and I wish I had the letter. I did tweet her. She gave me some good advice, and I'll always remember it. She said, you've got to keep at it and not be in such a hurry. So, Isn't yeah. it great when things like that happen? Yeah. When, when, you know, especially if you're a person who is so in love with reading and the word, and you're a young person, yeah. and someone that you admire and, and respect, and, and possibly, as a kid, as we do, worship, um, and they, they actually respond and get back to you. Yeah, it's so important, I think. I also, I think I sent a story to Just 17 magazine, which okay. really... She was my age. <laughs> um, and they sent me back my first rejection letter, which I then kept, I think. I probably still got that somewhere. So, But I was very shy about writing, and I certainly, you know, at school, I certainly wasn't, you know, I liked English, but I was very, very shy about it and didn't really like showing people. So it was a very private thing, and I, I didn't really have a lot of confidence. So mm-hmm. it was something I just did by myself. I also read a lot when I was a child I always had my nose in a book and I was always told to go out in the fresh air you know and I was like no I'd rather stay here <laughs> well, I suppose in, in one sense that advice that Judy Bloom gave you the idea of being disciplined and the idea of not giving up being resilient and determined you know any yeah. any writer will tell you yeah. that, that that is the hardest part is the being disciplined the being organised the being focused yeah and I think that takes a lot of practice I certainly felt in my 20s there was a lot of pressure to make it mm-hmm. by the time you're 30 and if you yeah. didn't it's too late you have to be this instant success well, very and rarely I, is it an instant yeah. success if it happens but that's not the norm I think probably through social media I find a lot of support on Twitter for example there, there are a lot of writers there and we all have rejection and we're all waiting to hear back but it's a very supportive community and it certainly gives me a lot of encouragement so that's something that I probably didn't have before as well. Of course, the internet and social media, for all the ills that can be associated with it, that is possibly one of the most positive elements for writers is that you have yeah. a resource there. And it's not just the resource of people in your own community, it's an international resource. If you can just not be too sensitive about people coming back to you and being critical of criticism, justified yeah. and, and well-thought and well-constructed criticism is actually the best thing mm-hmm. you could ever have. And if you can get into a community where that happens, I suppose that's going to benefit you. Yeah, with one thing that's been quite nice through Twitter and through the kind of competition circuit, mm. I now have someone who will read my work and give criticism and I'll read her work as well. That's also something that's worked well for me. Brilliant. Okay, sing to me this yeah. amazing short story. <laughs> Thank you. It's a real mix of trauma and humour and resilience with our character Natty. The genesis of that idea, where did that come from? I think I wanted to write a short story. What came into my head, first of all, was a girl who didn't speak. And that's how it started. And then I started thinking, why doesn't she speak? And then from that, I went to 
I don't know why, maybe I was reading The Little Mermaid to, to one of my nieces, but I suddenly thought about The Little Mermaid and how she, she gives up her voice for this prince who doesn't even like her. That made me think. So then I went back and read the story of The Little Mermaid and, and it's not obviously the Disney version. Oh, um, certainly it's not. really quite grim. And when I was a child, I did love the kind of Grimm's fairy tales, you know, like the, the red shoes when she gets her feet cut off, you know. Yeah. And so that's what I the wanted to The uncensored ones, yeah. the real ones, the dark ones. As you say, it's about trauma and how, you know, people have described it as you don't have the same life, but you've got to carry on living your life. So how do you do that? especially if you're a young person. Yeah, well, that, I think that is a theme that is so prevalent yeah. through it, is that there's a there's a wry, knowing teenager who is full of awareness, but at the same time is unbearably vulnerable. That tied in with the fantasy of the mermaid tales, and also her rather honest, critical and cutting, <laughs> cutting look at, 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 at the world of mental health care. Yeah. The parts of the story that are, are, are funniest are often the parts of the story that shouldn't be funny. Yeah. The relationship with the therapist who is supposedly meant to be helping you when in fact it's far from the truth i don't know what other people think i have been told that the black humor is very much a northern irish thing and i suppose it's something that kind of i'm not aware of it but i certainly would would use it in my writing you know as a writer you don't really know what's funny it's like being an actor on a stage, they, you know, which I have done as well mm-hmm. at one point, you never know where the audience are going to laugh. And mm-hmm. sometimes they'll laugh at things that you didn't think were funny. And I did a reading at OMA, a literary festival. And I remember at one point, one of the audience laughed at a point that's really not, it's yeah. quite oh. sad. <laughs> yeah. I, I do like that. You know, I kind of, I think you want to get a reaction from a reader or an audience whether it's laughter I mean if someone says it made them cry I feel kind of happy about that I don't mean to be heartless but I feel no. really thrilled well you know, you know it, 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 <laughs> it's in, in a sense it's your job to yeah. be conveying yeah. a message or, or, or a space or a world um, to the reader there has to be cause and effect you know or yeah. you want there to be that and uh, and if that's whether they in your eyes get it right or get it wrong it doesn't really matter they get something out of it and I think that is actually the beauty of a short story, is that you can do yeah. that in a relatively concise and uh, contained way um, where the reader has that response in the space of 15 to 30 minutes or whatever it is to take them to read it. I do find it a lot easier to write short stories. Mm-hmm. And I'm faster at writing them, whereas writing a novel is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's hardest <clears throat> when you get into the middle and it's like rowing a boat out and you can't see... The destination and you can't see the horizon and you just think right where am i going now whereas with a short story it's very much beginning middle end the form has to be i suppose in one sense contained within a, a certain degree of of, of structure and, and, and place well on that note would you like to read sing to me when i was 15 i stopped speaking When they told me, my lips formed an O and sucked out all the breath. My hand went over my mouth to keep the words in. It was due to a life-changing event. So according to the therapist, I have two lives instead of one, which are before and after. He draws a diagram on a piece of paper because apparently I am a very visual person. This is a tactful way of saying that I am Helen Keller meets Girl Interrupted. I see the two fleshy halves of my life splitting open like a post-mortem. I'm 16 now, but life isn't exactly sweet. 
because I live in Bluebird House, which sounds like a Disney castle, but is in fact a Looney Ben Sorry child and adolescent inpatient psychiatric unit, which is where they sent me after that night. The lights reflected on the water and I could hear the mermaids singing. The Little Mermaid was Katie's favourite bedtime story. Tuck me in, Nazi. She sucked her thumb in her pink and white nest, surrounded by an adoring audience of stuffed animals. Tell me about the castle, Nazi. The castle, I said, had open windows and the fish swam in and out like birds. It was made of pearly shells that burned in the blue light. The Little Mermaid had the most beautiful voice of all her sisters. I'm allowed visitors, but I don't want them. This is avoidance. The therapist gives me homework like calling my dad to say hi or writing a letter to dead people. Something to think about, he says. He has a face like a kindly moon and says, take care, Natalie. He uses my name a lot to show that I am a real person. Frankie's my best friend in Bluebird House, although technically she's my only friend, on account of everyone in here being socially challenged and not right in the head. Although that's not a helpful definition, according to Dr. Freud, and can lead to stigma. Frankie weighs approximately five stone. I have big bones, she says. I've named my psychiatrist Dr. Freud. He has black hair like Elvis that he greases back on his huge head into a mini ponytail and shrunken trousers that show off his hairy ankles and his bright red socks. I have a fat yellow file with my name in the front. Natalie Daisy Margaret Maloney. 16 years old and highly confidential. He's also my dealer. There are tiny peachy pills and plastic capsules, half green and half white. There are bitter white tablets that knock me out at night and give me a mouthful of metal and violent dreams. There are storms with waves as big as supermarket malls and boats splintering into tiny pieces. There are medication times. No one calls me Natalie. I've been Natty for as long as I can remember, mainly because Katie couldn't pronounce it when she was little and then it just stuck. Katie was short for Catherine because she was only four. She loved animals, especially dogs, and her favourite colour was yellow. Melissa was Lissa or Liss to rhyme with kiss. She thought snogging was the same as swallowing dead slugs, but she was only nine. She liked butterflies and ballet, and once she made a mermaid castle from a cereal box with turrets that were empty toilet rolls. They did a butterfly release at her school, or maybe it was paper lanterns or those balloons filled with helium gas that make you sound like Minnie Mouse. There were prayers in the local church and some people came on buses and coaches to pay their respects. The school put a statement on their website offering their deepest condolences. Natalie means Christmas Day, but I was born in April, which is the cruelest month according to a dead poet called T.S. Eliot, on account of spring being a slap in the face when you haven't showered in days and want to crawl back into the earth instead of all that bursting, budding growth. He also wrote a poem about measuring out his life in coffee spoons and the mermaids not bothering to sing to him, which means he was not a happy bunny. I am the eldest of three. The therapist wants to know more about me. He wonders if I could write it down. He slides a yellow pad towards me that says fluoxetine in the corner, which is another word for Prozac. And they should give me a GCSE in crazy meds because I've taken nearly all of them and once at the same time.
I write Google it and put my pen down like I finished an exam. The pharmaceutical clock ticks. The plane disappeared. One moment it was crackling over and out on the radar and the next minute it was gone. There was an explosion or a hijacking or maybe there was an act of God. There was just white noise. Frankie is 16 but she looks older on account of not eating. She moves slowly and carefully like an old woman and her bones are a hundred years old. She has to drink gallons of milk. Frankie says chin up chick because I'm stuck here whether I like it or not and there are worse places to be like adult wards with old men wanking through their dressing gowns. She doesn't eat and I don't speak. These things are who we are. I speak to my sisters when no one is listening. I tell them stories. The Little Mermaid was a teenager who didn't appreciate her beautiful castle or her father or her five supportive older sisters and ended up buying drugs from a sea witch in order to snare a prince who only liked her as a friend. Men will always let you down. Like my dad, for example, who left us for a woman called Sue. Is it short for Susan, I asked, and he said he didn't know. He said he loved us very much. My sisters live under the sea, fathoms deep. They are best friends with brightly coloured fish and they wear starfish in their hair and necklaces made of sea pearls. They have their own mermaid gardens and Katie has sunflowers and Lissa has pink-tipped anemones that open and close like they are saying hello and goodbye. When they are 15, they will swim to the surface and they will sing to me. Dr. Freud thinks I could benefit from some therapeutic input, which means he wants me to talk and process my feelings because apparently I have my whole life ahead of me. I see a road stretching into the distance like an American road trip. I hate it flying. Planes are very safe, they say. You have more chance of being killed by a falling coconut. They tell you what to do in the case of an emergency, as if anyone responds to a whistle in the horse end of the ocean. They show you pictures of people adopting the brace position like crash test dummies and how to put on an oxygen mask. Adults with children are supposed to put them on first. I was on a school trip to visit the war graves in France, Dulcier de Coromest. The boat smelt of diesel and old fish and Dylan Stewart won a hundred pounds on the slot machines. We filed past pale lozenges with name and rank and date. There were unknown soldiers too, which is a way of saying there's not much to put in a grave. The bus was quiet on the way back and Courtney cried. The police were already at the hotel with bad news faces. Miss Horner said there was no easy way to tell me this. I wasn't supposed to read the news, but I did. The search was ongoing and the cause unknown. It was presumed there were no survivors. There were 170 fatalities, including two children. The therapist understands this is difficult for me. Frankie's head becomes a skull. She sobs through the night as staff hush and soothe and she leaves in an ambulance for the hospital where a long tube will snake down from her nose and into her belly. 
Will it make me fat, she says, over and over again. The other patients come and go, and sometimes they acknowledge me, but mostly they are huddled up in their own personal hells, unless we have group or community meeting. They have wrists ringed with scars that are bright pink ridges or fading and half hidden with ratty plaits of thread. They complain about the staff or the food, or Big Lauren who doesn't wash, or Megan who hides food in the curtains. They don't ask why I never speak. They leave, but they don't always get better. I see the therapist on Wednesdays. I sit on a soft chair with hard elbows and he asks me what I'm thinking. I think about the harbour with the boats clinking together like ice cubes and the long pier with nothing at the side to keep you from falling in. I think about the long slipway, slippery with sea moss, and walking until I can't feel my feet anymore. I think about falling down like Alice until I see my sisters swimming towards me, reaching out their hands. I can see the turret tips of the castle. The therapist waits patiently for me to speak. He says, take all the time I need. My dad wants to get to know me again. He sends me letters that I don't read. Sue sends me a card that urges me to smile through the rain. Her handwriting is small and neat and there are no spelling mistakes because she is a teacher. Dear Jim, I write. I tell him that I am not interested in getting to know Sue, who is a very nice person despite being a homewrecker and the member of a golf club. I imagine Sue in a pale yellow sweater and putting my dad on a low cholesterol diet. She drives a mini with a personalised number plate and heated leather seats. There's a sticker at the back that says, Jesus is my anchor. There were 17 seconds between the distress call and the loss of transmission. The text said, I love you, Natalie. My mum wanted me to use my real name when I grew up. There were three kisses. Lissa, Katie and me. I would like to be a mermaid now, watching the ships go by. I would ride icebergs like chariots in icy storms, singing to sailors who watched the gathering clouds with a sense of dread. I would hold their heads above the waves as they cried for their mothers. I would swim with my sisters far out in the ocean where the water is as blue as cornflowers and as clear as glass and it is very, very deep, like church steeples stacked on top of each other. If I had a bottle, I would write a letter in it and send it down to the bottom of the sea. I would send a message with the seagulls and they would cry at your names as the wind buffets them around. I would say that I love you and I miss you and I won't forget you. I imagine you down there, my mother, my sea queen. I see my lost sisters with their pale lips, smiling with their ladybird backpacks and their buckets and spades. They are holding hands. They will sing to me. The Noella Bodies podcast is produced in a small back room in the Sheena's Heaney Centre. Still Worlds Turning is edited by Emma Warnock and is published by Noella Bodies Press. 
with thanks to Ruby Colley for her music. <laughs>